Some progressives have become really quite disturbed at the influence of what is clearly an intolerant, uh, belligerent and authoritarian fringe within social justice movements. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. I'm joined by Clive Hamilton, who is Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University. He's the founder of the influential progressive think tank, the Australia Institute, and he's the author of many books, including Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene, Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia. That book got him in a bit of trouble. And most recently, an autobiography called Provocateur, A Life of Ideas in Action. Clive, a warm welcome to the show. Good to be here, Jonathan. Now, Clive, in a very diverse and I would say influential career as a public intellectual, there are lots of different issues we could dive into that you have spoken about, written about, worked on. But what we're actually going to do is uh, concentrate on a recent short opinion piece that you wrote and published in the Sydney Morning Herald with the delicious title, Wake Up Lefties and Reject Wokeness. And what is really fascinating about this article, because I think all listeners will have heard some criticism and critiques of wokeness, is you're that rare animal of someone on the left critiquing wokeness and uh, decrying its nefarious influence on the left. Now, before we dive into that, I think we should do a bit of scene setting for those who may not have followed your interesting career in excruciating detail. And I want to draw your attention to something you write on the very first page of your autobiography, Provocateur, where you're talking about your younger self. The year is 1983. You've just graduated with a PhD in economics from the University of Sussex. And you describe yourself as a, and I quote, newly minted left-wing economist. And what I want to ask you is really a two-part question. What led you to gravitate towards the left as someone studying economics uh, at doctoral level? Or perhaps it was earlier that you sort of became associated with the left and what kind of leftist, and maybe that's not even the language you use because I realize when it comes to politics, right and left, there's a thousand subspecies, divisions, fault lines, <laughs> movements, disputes. I suppose really I'm just asking, paint a picture of who Clive Hamilton is in terms of your political philosophy that you self-identify as being on the left. Well. That's a big question, of course, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and everyone goes through a um, uh, political evolution uh, through their lives, but I've always, since my teenage years, seen myself as firmly on the left, still do, um, even though, uh, as you suggest, left uh, is a more kind of contestable term nowadays. Um, I, I mean... Um, I became left-wing as a late teen uh, because I became involved in the protest movement, particularly the uh, anti-Vietnam War but, uh, protest movement uh, while I was 
at high school and then university, firstly uh, here in Canberra at the Australian National University, but also the, uh, the anti-apartheid movement was very big at the time and I participated in a bunch of uh, demonstrations uh, there. Uh, and, and, of course, it was a time of great political ferment on the left, the kind of famous time of, uh, of up upheaval uh, with enormous consequences still today. <laughs> we'll talk about wokeism uh, subsequently. Um, one of the... Uh, I'll just point this out because it might provide a bit of context for later. Uh, those of us on the left who are active, and I was a kind of foot soldier rather than a leader, I should say, um, you know, also uh, were involved in the Indigenous rights uh, movement. And in fact, I, along with the, uh, other radical ANU students, linked arms with uh, uh, black activists around the original tent embassy, just over you know, about a kilometre from here, um, when the police arrived, great phalanxes of them, instructions of the, uh, I think it was the McMahon government, to rip down the tent. And it was a very violent uh, demonstration. Um, so I don't know why. You know, I, I, was a very, I find it very hard to say, well, you know, why did I, why was I attracted to the left? It was really, I think, um, perhaps a bit of my parents' influence who are kind of classical kind of Labour Party, open-minded liberal types, uh, smaller liberal types. But I think it's more to do with some innate radical sensibility uh, that some people have, um, blessing or a curse, depending on how you look at it. It makes for a more interesting life, uh, but uh, also more difficult if you start to act on it. So uh, after I knew I didn't know what to do, I went to Sydney University and did an economics degree, actually political economy uh, uh, was just beginning. And so I became closely tied up in the political economy movement demanding uh, progressive courses uh, uh, instead of the very uh, kind of orthodox neoliberal economics they were teaching there. Um, uh, although by the time I got to my honours year, there was no political economy, so I had to go into the orthodox uh, cl honours class and kind of battle it out from there, which was very useful because I was compelled to learn a lot of orthodox neoclassical economics, which has stood me in very good stead subsequently. You can argue much more effectively with your opponents if you know how they think. Um, I sometimes wonder what kind of leftist I am nowadays. I mean, I suppose... I suppose, uh, you know, I'm still, um, I don't, oddly, uh, I'm of the left, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a socialist because, uh, certainly not a communist because I'm, you know, I just, just don't, I, I think we do need to undertake far-reaching changes to the way our economy operates, uh, but certainly I wouldn't, uh, uh, you know, support in a way I once did, you know, widespread nationalisation or public ownership. Mind you, uh, when I was at the Australia Institute, we, we did, through our an analytical work, uh, strongly oppose certain privatisations, which just were, we were regarded as mad and not in the public interest, like selling off CSL, for example. It just was a monopoly, which has made um, 
billions of dollars for uh, private uh, shareholders, which could have been coming to the public. So, um, uh, yeah, so I'm very much uh, deeply suspicious of capitalism, uh, of the way corporations uh, operate, the way in which uh, the profit motive uh, is the dominant one in our society and the way in which uh, uh, capitalism uh, deeply influences the way, uh, particularly in its neoliberal form, deeply influences the way people think about themselves as individuals and as consumers rather than as citizens and the way in which neoliberal capitalism has radically reshaped the ethical priorities of Australian society. I think that's a great segue, Clive, into what are the first two sentences in the aforementioned opinion piece. Uh, the second one does touch on capitalism. and I would like to just read them out for the benefit of listeners. So this is how Clive begins his article, Wake Up Lefties and Reject Wokeness. It's time the left push back against woke. Afraid of being branded a racist, misogynist or transphobe, the left has been browbeaten into silence by woke activists, even though the left enabled the modern movements for black rights, gay rights and feminism. Left politics are about capitalism's structural inequalities, corporate power, state capture, exploitation, consumerism and the brutalization of everyday life for those at the bottom. Now I'll come to the capitalism question in a moment. Uh, but first, I'd like to invite you to talk a little bit more about wokeism per se, and particularly how you understand it or define it. And I'm conscious, as you probably are, having done a bit of research on this, I know that it's a contested term. Uh, some claim it's just a sort of a tool of the right to undermine just social uh, causes. I kind of think in one sense it's a bit like that veritable thing that can't be articulated but everyone knows what it is when they see it type of affair. But in any event, uh, why don't you give us at least uh, your sort of working definition or understanding of what we're talking about. Okay, well, when I wrote the piece, I thought pretty much everyone would kind of know what I meant by woke, but judging by many of the comments uh, beneath the article on the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age website, um, people didn't... People criticised me for not saying what I meant by woke. And so I thought about it, and it was too late, of course, to change the article, but... Uh, I did uh, decide to uh, uh, put uh, a bit of work into it. I must say that I got, an, I had a very, very interesting email exchange with a black American, to tell you the truth, activist maybe, I don't know, because he, I'm pretty sure it was a he, didn't give a name or used an alias, but he was very well informed uh, and yeah, it was a very polite exchange, one from which I learned a great deal about a kind of black sensibility on notions of woke. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. And I also had written a, several years ago uh, a long article in the conversation about a closely related uh, term, and that is political correctness. Uh, and so I know about the history of the term. Uh, I've written a book about protest movements uh, and 
the evolution of kind of understanding of left activism. And so I then, I then decided to write a, a kind of mini essay, uh, very mini essay, minuscule essay, let's say, uh, on uh, what woke means, or more particularly the evolution of the understanding of woke. Um, and I, I tweeted it. And so let me just read uh, three or four sentences from that. So I wrote, and you can see it uh, in the full thing in my Twitter thread, woke, meaning uh, being awake to, originated in black culture in the US to describe the constant need for black people to be alert to the threats and dangers of living in a racist society, as uh, one Chicago writer, Joshua Adams, said, um, they had to be, quote, vigilant and have a deep understanding of their social conditions in order to navigate, and they had to be woke. And the, and the term itself can be traced back at least to 1942, but it really took off in the kind of 90s and particularly the, the uh, noughties. Uh, and so the meaning of woke, the word, uh, evolved. Uh, in the 90s and, early, and the noughties, white allies of the black rights movement and other movements began to use it in mainstream forums in a more general way to describe being alert to all social injustices, particularly their more subtle forms. And it began then to carry a hint of self-congratulation. You know, it's kind of no one would say it as such, but kind of I'm more woke from you than you because I can identify a form of oppression. Yes, it's subtle, it's a microaggression, but I can see it and can't you see it? <laughs> and um, but then because people on the left or progressive side were using it like that, uh, woke uh, became an epithet used by the right, by fear-mongering conservatives in their continuing culture war to ridicule and dismiss more, you know, the radicalising social movements and their successes in pressing institutions uh, to change their uh, discriminatory practices. And so the right, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, but also here in the Murdoch press, for example, took over woke and started turning it back on uh, social progressives. And, but more recently, some progressives, including myself, and a lot more, judging by their reactions to my Sydney Morning Herald piece, some progressives have become really quite disturbed at the influence of what is clearly an intolerant, uh, belligerent and authoritarian fringe within social justice movements that's been actively intimidating and shutting down other voices on the left. And it's this fringe that I refer to as woke following this increasingly common tweaking of the meaning of the term by some on the left to capture the kind of hypervigilance and overreaction to what this radical uh, militant fringe sees it as expressions of racism, transphobia, and uh, so on. So that's the sense in which I'm criticising woke, the way in which it's become come to... It's a way of capturing the intolerant and aggressive uh, attacks by a kind of militant fringe on the left against those perceived as being... Uh, racist or transphobic for the most actually innocuous or contestable 
expressions of uh, a progressive viewpoint. Fascinating. That's actually one of the best uh, tours of the term I've ever heard. So thank you for that. I'm sure listeners will appreciate it. Uh, let's dive straight into the article now that we've cleared up <laughs> the term woke and wokeism. And I want to come to this idea of capitalism, which uh, was in the quote, and you raised it yourself in terms of one of the sort of priorities for you as someone on the left, this kind of skepticism, I think the term you use may have been, or at least some concern about the way capitalism operates, and particularly in its neoliberal form, it has kind of really shaped our culture right down to ethics, anthropology, uh, the way non-economic institutions work, and you name it, some might even say sexuality. Uh, here's, Here's the question. And I'm assuming you agree, but if you don't, by all means, um, clarify. Uh, And and I've got this from speaking to other people on the left as well. Uh, Let's call them more traditional people on the left, concerned about poverty, the working class, uh, the relationship between workers and employment, making sure that there's a kind of dignity of work and that people don't become sort of uh, slaves by some kind of subtle... uh, means, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here probably, but this is the question, assuming you agree, why has a new generation of people on the left seemed to have completely lost interest in the things that have animated your entire uh, career? Uh, This focus on identity, uh, sexuality, race, gender, these particular concerns to do with the, the human person and the expression of the human being, and it seems to have come at the expense of those. Uh, they talk a lot about things like structural racism, but little concern for economics and <laughs> economic systems and capitalism and those things that uh, one might say are much more macro in that they affect everyone, irrespective of your identity. Yeah. Um... Yes, uh, it's, it, it's a conundrum as to what the historical and social forces were that actually brought about this shift on the left from a um, what's been called a politics of, uh, re, uh, of uh, redistribution to a politics of recognition uh, concerned with people's identities. Um, I don't have a really good answer to this, um, You kind of alluded to it. I think it's a lot to do with the really comprehensive victory of neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s in mainstream politics. Uh, We saw the convergence of, in Australia, the convergence of the Labor Party onto a neoliberal uh, economic orthodoxy from which it has barely uh, deviated since. And so there was, and of course the, uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, um, which meant that uh, there was no uh, uh, no more a uh, and the weakening of trade unions. I'll just throw that into no more sustained kind of opposition and critique within a country like Australia to capitalism and its excesses. There was no alternative ideology. There was no more socialist alternative. And so, as I've said before, in the 70s, well, particularly the 80s and 90s, um, the right won the economic battle 
and the left won the cultural battle. Uh, and both of those are the sources of our current uh, malaise uh, on the left. There's no sustained alternative in terms of a social system, uh, and yet the elements of the victories uh, in, in the cultural battles, rights of women, indigenous rights, gay rights and so on, have been taken to a kind of almost grotesque extreme by the militant fringe of the left. So I think a lot of it has to do with the victory of neoliberalism and the, and the collapse of a, of a systematic alternative to capitalism. And so younger people on, who have the kind of radical impulse that I talked about uh, on the left, you know, they need an outlet for it. And um, it became this kind of exaggerated uh, personal and ideological commitment to fighting racism, fighting misogyny and fighting uh, trans transphobia. And as always with political movements, people come, uh, and so on the, very much on the right as well, as we see intensely with Trumpism in the United States, people don't just adopt a set of ideas and political practices. They take them, particularly on the, when they're more radical in their politics, they take them into their sense of personal identity. And so uh, expressing, manifesting their political ideas becomes a way of expressing themselves. And when, uh, when people become completely uncritical and start competing to see who can be you know, more politically pure than <clears throat> their comrades on the right or the left, you go in a very dangerous direction because people completely lose sight of alternative views. They completely uh, lose the capacity to engage in self-criticism. They, they can't accept what the world is feeding back to them about what they're saying or doing. And that's, uh, I guess that's kind of the story of extremism through human history. Clive, you said something that I thought was really insightful earlier, and the, the term you mentioned was self-congratulatory or self-congratulation, that the, the term woke uh, is a form of self-congratulation in that by definition it is suggesting that you see what no one else sees. And actually, this, this wasn't going to be my point, but just as an aside, there's a, there's a striking parallel with what I would call the infection of conspiracism on the right because I've always thought one of the attractions of uh, the conspiratorial mindset is that you see a truth that no one else sees. You are, that is the right form of woke, is that Absolutely. I can see who's really pulling the strings and couldn't, couldn't agree more. This. And, and, and the reason, one of the reasons why I'm so attuned to this is because I've spent many years studying and writing books about climate science denial, uh, which evolved in the United States and spread um, in part by deliberate design by right-wing think tanks and individuals in Australia uh, to Australia. And what became apparent, and I've, I've written a bit about this, is that uh, before 2009, um, scepticism, let's call it, uh, 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 or denial of climate science, countering climate uh, science, was very much a kind of industry-led, fossil fuel industry-led uh, um, uh, political marketing strategy. You can see what happened. 
And then with the emergence of the kind of Tea Party movement, which in 2009 in the US, I happened to be in the US for a few months and saw one of the, happened to walk past one of the very first Tea Party uh, protests, a scraggly bunch of people on Boston, Boston Common. Um, very, very quickly, um, deni the denial of climate science became drawn into this kind of uh, uh, cultural war mindset of that uh, Tea Party, let's call it now, Trumpist uh, uh, view of the world, uh, which, you know, the, suddenly, I mean, people on the right didn't particularly, before 2000, didn't reject climate science. Even someone like Sarah Palin was out there saying, we must do something to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But then it became part of the culture wars. And very, very quickly, within two, three years, for, for those people, rejecting climate science became part of a sense of one's political identity. I'm not going to be fooled by those left-wing environmentalist elites, including those scientists who are all engaged in a conspiracy, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm the kind of person who is not bamboozled by these people. I'm the kind of person who can see the truth. And so it's exactly the same sort of process going on here. It's the same dopamine hit that you get. A precise would be more pure than the next person. I mean, I'd argue that with wokeism on the left, it's, it's far less dangerous to the world and our future than climate science denial. But it's, and look, you know, who isn't subject to this? Mm. I mean, I have been in the past who who doesn't get this you know quiet sense of satisfaction by you know one upping someone by s saying oh yes but had you realized that you know this thing is actually a worse form of racism or misogyny you hadn't thought of that had mm. you yeah so well, that, that there's was, a lot of that going on yeah and see what i was thinking was that the once it once this concept function has this self-congratulatory function then i can see how quickly it might end up in a zero-sum game because uh, particularly once the term becomes popular popularized in a certain milieu well then you've you've got to become woker than the other woke people around you and you i do. wonder if that plays a role it, yeah. in the kind of uh extremities bordering into absurdities we hear sometimes from the, that that more radical part of uh, the left, which starts to just sound delusionally out of touch with reality, but of course, within their own uh, social context, yeah. they are probably trumpeting how, you know, you think you're woke, but I'm even woke up because I can see the fact that that person was racist by the way their eyebrow moved. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, and, <laughs> and, and I think that uh, amongst younger activists on the left, uh, certainly the more militant ones, I'm sure that's, on, on university campuses in particular, um, that's been driving the more kind of outrageous expressions of wokeism, such as, um, you know, the attacks on um, gender-critical feminists, the attempt to close them down, to you know, literally to silence them, uh, getting them kicked off campuses, that kind of thing. Um, I'm sure within those uh, within those groups, um, there's a, there's always you know a lot of kind of self justification, encouragement, 
respect for those who take more extreme measures like, you know, um, doing all kinds of outrageous things. And, of course, people become unleashed online, uh, particularly when they have the protection of anonymity and say the most outrageous things. Speaking of cancel culture, you keep seamlessly segueing into the next issue I'd like to talk about in your in your piece, and, and that is to do with uh, the the work assault on free speech connected to cancel culture, of course. And you you say this in the article, and I quote: "Opinions that are annoying, upsetting, or infuriating are not necessarily intolerant or harmful, let alone hateful." They are an everyday part of living in a democratic society. Now, I totally agree, but the, the thing that you're striking, Clive, is that that... You know, I, I realise you have to say that, obviously, to the kind of people you're speaking to, but it feels bleedingly obvious. It just seems so obvious that it would hardly be needed to point out that, um, I would just say, being an adult is being able to hear views that you find confronting or challenging and having the maturity to deal with them and respond to them. Uh, so here's the, the question I have for you. And again, I want to pick on the young generation or generations because generations seem to get so compressed these days that a new one pops up every five years or something. So, and they've all got a different... The markers, market as well. The market. So invent one, yeah. It's your, it's your neoliberal capitalist pigs at work. <laughs> but the, uh, in all seriousness, the, the question is, and others have pointed this out, this is not an original view of mine, but there's almost this strange magical quality that seems to be accorded to words as though... The mere utterance of a word is a form of violence in a world where we literally have genocide, which is talk about, um, you know, stretching a semantic field to point to breaking point, and also where it, it's it can create trauma, also in a world where people suffer really serious uh, trauma, and I've thought a lot about about this, and I I can't understand where this idea has come from and why so many young people find it plausible? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, words are powerful. Um, and, and, you know, I'd just call us out, if I might, uh, two white blokes um, who aren't subject to uh, the uh, uh, extraordinarily destructive power that words can have if you are, you know, a marginalised black person uh, in Australia or the United States. And I think the idea of microaggressions is act was, was actually an extremely germane and, and, and clever way of characterising those forms of racism uh, in particular um, that were under the radar or were justified as just jokes or, well, what's wrong with that? And... I think people who are at, you know, at the end of those kind of um, microaggressions um, often, you know, did genuinely feel and, and legitimately feel as though these were manifestations of uh, racist attitudes. So I think we have to acknowledge that for marginalised people, words uh, are extraordinarily uh, powerful and, and wounding and can even be hateful. On the other hand... Uh, I think 
what's happened with uh, wokeism is that in the early years, again, a lot of this derived from the early years of the new social movements in the 60s, 70s uh, and, and even 80s, when it was discovered that uh, words used by um, progressive people could be an extremely uh, uh, effective way at, re at responding to oppressive behaviour, calling it out. I think probably the, um, the most you know, illustrative in this case is the word homophobia. So, you know, I grew up in a time when, you know, uh, vilification of gay people when I was a boy and a teenager was just rife and we didn't even think about it. Um, and then uh, the uh, gay move movement began in the late 60s and, and was extremely effective over the next 20, 30 years. And one of the ways is they, uh, they did it was by turning it back onto the uh, people who, men typically, who hated and were afraid of gay people, gay men in particular. And so to, particularly for a young person, uh, to respond by saying, well, that's just homophobic, you kind of turn the spotlight back onto the person uttering the, the slur or the snide remark. And it was an extremely effective way of doing it, like, you know, misogynist and, uh, and more recently, although it's gone off the charts, uh, transphobic. Uh, I think that's a much more kind of contestable one. Um, and so using words in that way can be extremely powerful. I mean, of course, a lot of this builds on the uh, work of Michel Foucault uh, in the uh, 60s, 70s, developing the idea of the way in which worlds are created through words, uh, through discourse power. And, and so, um, but I think like so much with wokeism, it's just become kind of extreme and it's kind of lost its tether to reality and what's intended and what is actually happening. And so all kinds of stuff that's perfectly reasonable, uh, well-meaning and not secretly transphobic, misogynistic, racist commentary is characterised as hate speech because it doesn't get the nuances exactly right in the, in the eyes of the, the wokest uh, of the woke. And that on the left, you know, as I started my article, on the left it's extremely uh, uh, insulting for someone who's always thought of themselves as being anti-racist, um, pro-feminist, uh, tolerant of transphobic, uh, tra sorry, trans, uh, transgender kids, for example, to be accused of being a racist, a sexist, a transphobe, and I've had all of those thrown at me, uh, and it's an extremely effective way of shutting people up, mm. extremely effective, because you are saying that you as a political being are everything you pretend that you aren't. And this can spread within the you know, more progressive and the broader progressive. I mean, I've, I had an excellent example of this when I wrote my book on the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, within days of the book appearing, uh, two prominent 
well, one prominent and one not-so-prominent person on the left, had written raging uh, opinion pieces attacking me as a racist and a sinophobe. And anyone who read the book uh, or was aware of my history of anti-racism could think, well, and, and the role of Chinese people in helping me write the book, promote the book, publish the book, launch the book by Chinese people in Sydney, you know, uh, welcomed by Hong Kong activists, uh, pro-democracy people in China. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And yet <clears throat> the accusation stuck. There are now thousands of people out there, not just young activists, but radio producers, uh, documentary makers, uh, uh, writers' festival directors, uh, all kinds of people, academics, <clears throat> who formed the view, without reading the book, but have formed the view early, oh, Clive Hamilton turned out to be a racist. He wrote this book, Silent Invasion, on the Chinese Communist. He's a racist. And so they dismiss me. Um, <clears throat> they criticise me. They don't invite me to things. Uh, all kinds of things like that have happened to me because very early on a couple of people with influence accused me of being a racist. A couple of people, I'd, I might add, with uh, agendas associated with the Chinese Communist Party. Wow. Uh, what do I do with that? I mean, I don't know, I know a fair bit of the... The backstory about the writing of that that book, and it was an extremely courageous <laughs> thing to write, and it, it wasn't an easy birth either. But it, it's kind of so shocking in a way because I'm just backtracking on the way I, I began that because in a way there is a kind of magic to words, and you just gave an illustration mm -hmm. so that they there are perhaps it's an irony is that the workers of work really do understand your point. They understand the power of language and they know how to use particular terms in the way um, that they claim others are doing. So, you know, others use racial slurs and it, it, it's harmful and it's damaging. But they, they deploy language as a weapon themselves. And so by simply associate branding you with that, term racist which is the worst in a culture where people are conditioned to think you know people could be a racist who you don't think are a racist because it's much more subtle and it's much more ubiquitous than you thought so if they just read an article and says Clive Hamilton's a racist they say well that, that's plausible because we're all you know so many of us are latent racists and mm. you can't trust mm. even people on on the mm -hmm. left mm -hmm. but I mean uh, that it's interesting. I take your point about, uh, you know, the the climate change issue with its geological, planetary <laughs> uh, scope impact um, is much more serious than than wokeness. But and, and I'm not going to dispute that. But it it does make me wonder if you if you're underplaying a little bit, given the the powerful testimony you've just given personally about how this excessive application of the use of the term racist and, and, and granted in this case perhaps uh, very deliberately and consciously not a genuine sort of belief that Clive Hamilton's a racist but understanding 
the new linguistic context we're in and how they can attempt to silence someone who's ironically written a book called Silent Invasion. <laughs> um, and and another, edited another book called Silencing Dissent about how conservatives, the, the Howard government in particular, <clears throat> was um, uh, through systematic means uh, silencing academics and other critics of the neoliberal agenda and, and the Howard government. Yeah, yes, so I get, I get it. I mean, couldn't, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking if, if left unchecked, that's a big if, but if left unchecked, don't we all end up silenced or in some kind of linguistic totalitarian system where there are just certain topics that no one can write about, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party or just trying to look critically at the complex interrelation of biology and gender identity or, uh, I mean, try and write anything critical on the Indigenous issue in Australia. It doesn't matter how dispassionately or empirically or soberly you to try to do it. I mean, that is, it's a very easy way to get branded a racist in our contemporary you culture. Bet. yeah. And we're currently uh, <laughs> in the voice debate. Yeah, I'm going to say vote. I'm going to vote yes in the referendum. But there are um, well-meaning, uh, thoughtful people who believe that the referendum, who will vote no and argue the case. And yet the vilification, you know, they're all racists, they're all Trumpists, you know, coming from some quarters, it's really extraordinary. And in fact, you know, truth is that probably half of the Australian population is going to vote no. And, you know, Hillary Clinton's huge mistake, as we know, was saying, you know, dismissing Trump supporters as, what was the word she used? Deplorables. Deplorables. I mean, what a mistake. Yeah, that's a catastrophic tactical (laughs) error, that. Uh, Talking about the use of language. It sure was. (laughs) Now, look, yeah, we won't elaborate on Trump and, and, and the deplorables, but, you know, you have to be careful in the way you... Uh, characterise large groups. And, you know, I direct this caution to myself as much as anyone else. Clive, uh, something that has come up a few times, which is the the whole... You mentioned corporations in that context of capitalism, but also just the neoliberal paradigm that seems to dominate our culture in so many uh, ways, talking about subtle influences and structural influences... I really uh, love this bit of the article, and I quote, you say, despite its radical style, work politics is perfect for the neoliberal era of individualism and identity making. Work politics is easily co-opted by corporations. They borrow work's language and symbols as marketing tools while continuing to exploit (laughs) their workers. Here we see the old school uh, leftists, I think, having what I think is a, a very powerful and penetrating dig at the contemporary social justice warriors who seem to be perfectly happy or perhaps oblivious, I'm not sure which it is, um, to have their causes used to make a profit by big corporations who can just, you know, have a pride round, put the rainbow flag here and there, say we care about the LGBTIQ community whilst making a billion billion dollars of trade with Saudi Arabia where it's illegal to be a homosexual or whatever. You know, everyone knows about these 
rank cases of hypocrisy. Uh, I, I guess it's, it's, there's really two issues going on here. It, it's what does this say about wokeism uh, and the fact that it just has it's mute on this <laughs> exploitation because I think it's definitely exploitation from my perspective. But also, what does it tell us about our economic system where corporations can so easily manipulate? And I think it is a form of manipulation because I really don't... Th I find it hard to believe when they're sitting around the, in the marketing department that they really passionately care about all this stuff. I think they're like, this is how we can improve our reputation or improve the bottom line. I would say maybe I'm being too cynical, but I'm guessing I couldn't be too cynical. I don't for you. think you can't be too <laughs> cynical. And I'm honestly, I mean, if you look at the way corporations have uh, always worked, I mean, you just have to assume that uh, they are always operating with one objective in mind, and that's the bottom line. I wrote an article many years ago. You know how people vent about the banks in Australia? And I wrote an article, <clears throat> the headline was, the banks are bastards, so what? <laughs> I mean, what else do you expect? Uh, that's just what they do. And it's, it's not because they're evil people. It's because it's how the system is structured. If, for example, um, uh, a CEO of um, a fossil fuel corporation um, one night uh, peeked into his kid's room and they were sleeping uh, peacefully and he suddenly realised that he was screwing their future and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go to work tomorrow and change what the corporation does. We're going to get out of coal and we're going to build wind farms. He'd be gone within a week and they'd put someone in there who was amenable to carrying on uh, what the corporation's supposed to do. And so... Um, but if they can co-opt something uh, in a way that advances their, uh, uh, their perception in the target market, then they'll do it. I remember going way back, uh, must have been in the late 60s even, at the time of uh, Billie Jean King, uh, you know, who was a gay American tennis player, a very brilliant tennis player, feminist, and... Um, it was the late 60s that uh, an American tobacco company, can't remember which one, but they brought out <clears throat> a, a new cigarette for women called Virginia Slims. And the marketing tag was, hey, baby, you've come a long way and kind of we've made a cigarette for you. And I thought, wow, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was fast. Um, and But we see it now. I mean, take... Qantas, for example, led the corporate charge in favour of the uh, uh, yes vote for marriage equality. Um, and then what, it, what was Qantas doing all the time in those years, and particularly through COVID, they were absolutely screwing their workers, absolutely screwing them dry. And it just struck me as you kind of intimated of what a complete contradiction it was that the Qantas was really concerned about social justice when it came to gay marriage uh, and the pink, you know, appealing to the pink dollar, as it used to be called, um, but uh, had absolutely no compunction about uh, casual firing, casualising their workers, um, 
reducing their conditions and their pay. So, I mean, that's what, that's what they do. Yeah, that's just what they do, and we ought to stop being surprised uh, that, they, that they do it uh, in that way. So is this what happens when, when you start focusing exclusively on identity and not those broader economic questions, well, the then you don't realise how you're being exploited. Well, the more qu- interesting question is the one you asked that, that I, I didn't answer, and that is why why do the uh, woke brigade, if I can call them that, sorry to disparage, um, just accept this as a you know uh, a victory in, in the struggle and ignore everything else. I mean, look, being generous, um, you know, every advance every support for your cause with a few exceptions which might be damaging um, is is to be welcomed uh, and so yeah there are other problems but you know we can't fight all the battles at once so we're just sticking to you know gay marriage or the voice or whatever it is that that corporations are seizing upon in order to uh, massage their public perception for their target audiences You've done another segue, Clive, because uh, there's a, a really simple but striking sentence um, in the opinion piece, and it is to do with the Indigenous issue. The voice has come up a few times. This isn't specifically about the voice, but I, I suppose we live in a culture now where I, I, I suspect this will res- resonate with a lot of people. And you say this, Indigenous people I have spoken with regard with wry amusement the awe in which they are held by woke activists. And I know this is a difficult question, and this is one I I ponder a lot as a religious person, because it, you know, I I would say Australia is going through a really interesting cultural transformation right now, where we've gone from... Uh, addressing a really heinous omission of the First Peoples and a dishonesty about what happened to them. And we've zipped through recognition and acceptance and the notions of equality to a, a strange almost kind of devotion and worship of all things Indigenous to the point where we, we do, as everyone Australian will have experienced routinely, and this has only really happened over the last 10 years, mm. the... The, the kind of uh, liturgical style acknowledgements to country in almost every single meeting uh, where any people are gathered. And what, what I've observed is an interesting evolution. So there's the kind of base liturgy that you can sort of utter. But people are starting to really expand and, and, and it is going into interesting spiritual domains if you listen to the, the language that... Uh, and this is not just Indigenous people. We're also... when um, non-Indigenous Australians are doing the acknowledgement. And so I've always thought, I've always at least pondered the question, is this, is this kind of what happens when you go through a loss of traditional religion? You start to kind of look for spirituality in other uh, places. And I don't want to push you down that road. Mm. I'm just sort of sharing one idea I have. But um, I think it's undeniable that there's this really interesting moment and this this you know in my childhood you talked about the kind of gay bashing of your childhood and there was plenty of that in the 80s too but uh aboriginal australia was just this kind of cute fascination it was didgeridoos and boomerangs that white people threw on a camp at school and apart from that we just uh forgot that they existed uh 
I guess I'm, I'm, I've sort of taken us through a broader cultural question, and, and I did the the uh, quote I read out was specifically about the wokeness, but I suppose they're not unrelated. Uh, so after all that, all I can ask is, well, what do you make of this uh, well, interesting it, timer? And it, it, I mean, it is. I've had similar thoughts. Um, um, it's this, yeah, the, uh, well, what is it uh, among white people? And it's definitely a manifestation of wokeism, this kind of constant genuflection towards, you know, indigenous spirituality and um, the, uh, the uh, uh, long history of indigenous occup- occupation or uh, habitation of... Uh, of Australia and the, it, it really does feel as though it, white people have started to kind of fetishise. I mean, you know, if you're, I can't possibly speak for an Indigenous person, but I'm, I'm sure some are thinking, whoa, never thought it'd go this well. <laughs> look at the, <laughs> they, uh, look, <laughs> these whiteies are going to do this. Well, you know, we'll go with it. Um, but, you know, I wrote that comment um Indigenous people I've spoken with regard with wry amusement the awe in which they are held by woke activists. I was thinking in particular of a young black activist I had a conversation with in the context of a research project I was doing about youth climate activists. And uh, he, he was just talking about how, and he, he did it with his kind of wry amusement, of how whenever there's a protest uh, or a meeting, you know, they, they always ask him to go along and they always put him first uh, and they always kind of hang on his words. And, you know, he, he got what was going on um, and he kind of made some passing comment to me. It was, it was kind of, well... I'm happy to take it, you know, why not? And indeed, why not? <laughs> There's a lot of history to make up for. But it was more an observation on the way in which within, you know, for the best of reasons, uh, these progressive uh, uh, activists um, were in a way trying to outdo each other in demonstrating their respect for Indigenous people and Indigenous culture. And so I think it's, it's really reached an enormous height, uh, as you said, in, in, in recent years. And as I say, there's a, a massive historical deficit that will never be repaid. But I do wonder whether, um, you know, uh, it's kind of... It's not just tokenism, of course, because this genuflecting is a, a great opportunity for Indigenous people to say, well, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Um, but uh, I think we're probably going through a particular high point in Australia now. And when we, uh, guilty white people, um, have kind of uh, 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 expressed our guilt through this constant genuflecting, we'll get back to a more balanced assessment uh, and a more balanced way of kind of understanding 
the relationship between Indigenous people and the uh, descendants of settlers and, and new migrants. Interesting. Uh, I want to finish with the issue that I, I gather you care most about and you've probably best known for, and that's the climate change uh, issue. That's the one where you've done a lot of trench warfare with uh, in the political uh, realm. But you make this really interesting observation about the impact of wokeism on um, action on climate change. And again, I'm going to quote, you say the youth climate movement that sprang from Greta Thunberg's lone protest has been taken over by wokeness so that it's now illegitimate to campaign for climate protection unless you campaign for social justice at the same time. Fixing the climate crisis is too urgent to wait for other problems to be solved first. Apart from diluting the energy put into climate campaigning, woke ideology is driving more conservative young people away. Now, I gather what you have in view here is that uh, climate change is a classic collective action problem of a global level. So to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you actually need the whole planet moving in the same direction. direction, which means then you need a pretty broad constituency on board if you're going to actually uh, bring about the kind of change you would like to see. Is that kind of where your concern is coming from, that that, that wokeism is kind of, apart from just making it impossible to actually put focused energy on the climate change, it's repelling people from... (laughs) Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, it was catastrophic when... uh, climate change and climate science became uh, absorbed into the culture wars into the United States because all of a sudden it became trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions became a left-wing issue and opposing that became a right-wing issue and that has cost the world more than a decade of serious climate action and has probably, I mean, let's face it, as a result of that has probably means the planet's screwed because of that, because it became a cultural slash political issue. And so what we've seen in the youth climate movement, I studied it uh, in some detail, uh, or interviewed uh, quite a number of young climate activists around the world, or around the uh, West, Western world, let's say. Um, it was very focused on climate uh, and then more and more over two or three years, it started to stress social justice and racism and so on and so forth. Now, when I wrote that comment, you know, I was accused of, oh, you know, how can you say climate change not about social justice? And I had to remind at least one person who should have known better that no one, I think I'm almost true saying in Australia, was, was talking about the complete injustice of climate change earlier than I was. I was writing about it in the 1990s. Uh, I have uh, time and time again talked about the profound unfairness of the fact that rich countries, you know, cause the emissions and poor people suffer the consequences. But the point I'm trying to make here is that if you, within the youth climate movement, if you devote a lot of your energies to social justice questions, for example, Black Lives Matter, you, you are diluting your energies that uh, should be going into climate. And 
climate has been something that's you know fixable within a decade or two. Uh, it, it's pretty simple, really. Radically, sharply reduce greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere. Um, and to say that, well, we're not going to solve the climate problem until we say solve the social justice problem, I just think it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just wrong. Um, we will still have racism and misogyny in 2050. The question of whether we have net zero is still an open one. Let's hope we do have net zero. But it won't depend on eliminating racism and misogyny, let alone transphobia. So I was talking, interviewing uh, a young activist in New York who was a member of the Republican Party and he was heavily involved in Fridays for Future, was, was a big activist in organising that massive demonstration in New York, the one that Greta Thunberg uh, attended, when was it, in 2000, must have been 19. Um, and he said that in one of their meetings, Zoomy meetings, um, he questioned a push by some of the activists to change, oh, let me try and get this right, some of them wanted to change the date of a planned protest because it fell on a, uh, uh, on a Muslim holiday. And he said, you know, he went out and he talked to some Muslim friends of his at university and he spoke to a couple of senior leaders within the Islamic community and they all said, it doesn't, doesn't bother us. And, but when he said this on uh, this Zoom meeting, that not sure it's a good idea to change the date. Muslim people I've spoken to aren't really fussed by it. He got absolutely monstered as an Islamophobe and he said he, it was a very tough meeting. He went to bed that night and he woke up and in the morning he turned on his phone and he was just being savaged from everyone across the world for being a terrible Islamophobe. And he said, I got cancelled. It's the worst experience in my life and I just had to leave the movement. I thought, wow, there you are. I mean, that is just so counterproductive. You want young Republicans. <laughs> They're the people you most want to convert and be active and to be working on, you know, um, swinging Republicans who could be persuaded that, hey, actually young people really care about this. But no, they drove him out because he, uh, he committed a heresy. And it just... Um, I just want one more thing that, that's kind of close to my work, and that is on the question of China. China has by far the highest greenhouse gas emissions in the world, more than twice those of the United States. The average Chinese person has higher per capita emissions than the average European. Um, and so really the future of the world uh, depends much more than anything else on what the Chinese Communist Party decides to do about China's emissions. And yet, in the international climate campaigning movement, there's a huge reluctance to even mention China. It's racist. How can we blame them? They're in the global south. It, we're the evil ones. So we've got to keep criticizing, criticizing us Europeans, us Americans, us Australians. Well, you know... Climate change is about the future, okay? Not the past anymore. 
we might carry a huge historical burden and guilt for what we've done. We do. What the West hasn't done has been appalling. The truth is from now on, what what matters most is what's decided in Beijing. So why aren't we campaigning to try to shift China to more rapidly reduce its emissions? But no, uh, there's an extreme reluctance to say anything critical about uh, the Chinese Communist Party because, as a very effective uh, propaganda uh, trope, the CCP has persuaded everyone that criticising the Chinese government is criticising the Chinese people and is therefore sinophobic. This is extremely damaging, uh, and yet there it is. So yet another profound example of the way certain arguments and activities are just silenced and constrained because of this all-pervasive concern about uh, race and sexuality that seems to be sort of projected everywhere, even though it might come at the expense of uh, serious matters that obviously sit within that left orbit too. I take your point about climate change not just being a left thing, but these people do. These are people working on climate change who are uh, self-censoring and, and self-constraining. Clive, we have to bring the conversation to to an end, and I could end with the the big million-dollar question of like, how did we end up here? But I think in a way we've kind of unpacked that through the journey. So the the question I think I will finish on, which which is probably much more interesting and relevant, and you alluded to this at one stage in the conversation. What has the response been? to this article. I mean, you are one of Australia's highest profile public intellectuals on the left and notwithstand, uh, notwithstanding the, the slurs against you as some uh, sinophobe, I think you've got as good credentials as anyone. I mean, you founded the Australia Institute after, after all and you were on the climate change. I mean, you were at the vanguard of that issue in Australia. So what kind of reaction has Clive Hamilton got from writing this uh, article calling on those in the trenches with you on the the left to reject wokeism? Well, um, it's interesting. Uh, I didn't get monstered a lot online, uh, but Christine Milne reposted the article with uh, on Twitter just saying um, interesting read or something like that or a good read, something like that. And she got absolutely savaged oh, by really? people within the Greens, basically. Uh, younger activists are just the most <laughs> savage criticism of her. Uh, fortunately, Christine uh, has a very tough skin. But more that, that's kind of be it's kind of to be expected, I suppose, regrettably. But more interestingly for me, I always uh, when there's a when there's a you know, significant uh, opinion piece, whether it's in the Sydney Morning Herald or the New York Times or the Guardian, I I, I go to the comments underneath, and uh, and and then you can click on uh, not most recent but most respected or most liked, and I always do that to see well how are the punters at, at least who read this media outlet uh, reacting to this, and. The underneath the the Herald one, I, I just printed out 
uh, the most, the top four, um, one, two, three, four, comments that got the most respected. Okay, got a huge number of comments. Uh, it was 832, I think, before they stopped taking comments. And here, just in summary, I won't read them all out. I'm a former left, this is the top comment, most respect. I'm a former lefty who still yearns for fairer distribution of wealth, housing, health, education, and the rest, but I've been driven away from the movement by the inane identity politics that have almost totally dominated the left now. Second most uh, liked. Much of what you write had to be said, Clive. It's about time someone had the courage to do it and to publish it. Third most respected comment. As an ageing left activist, I believe this article contains important and long overdue messages for the left or, in fact, any fair-minded person. And the fourth most liked. Thank you, Sydney Morning Herald. This is what so many of us on the left think but struggle to articulate if we have the courage to even try. This article has given me the resolve and courage to not keep my mouth shut as I usually do when these topics come up. So these are the ones that readers of the Herald or readers of that article most liked. And they're all, the top four all say broadly the same thing. It's about time someone said this, we've been intimidated and you know, we've had a gut fall. And it's consistent with my perception that the that wokeism has reached a peak and the tide is starting to turn. I know in the Greens, and I'm still a member of the Greens, um, you know, there's been a kind of quiet revolt uh, of people who see the world broadly, as I do, who are really sick of being bullied and intimidated by the woke act activists on transphobia in particular and I said no enough's enough and are really starting within internally to push back in Victoria and Queensland and so on and it's interesting that privately quite a lot of the you know congratulatory comments I received via email and text were from uh, long-term activists within the Greens so uh, I think the tide is turning it might take quite a long way uh, a time for it to to flow out but uh, the reason it's turning is that in the end enough sensible people just say screw this I'm not going to be silenced anymore I'm going to screw up my courage go out there or go in there in internal meetings say what I think needs to be said and take the pain uh, when it comes because I know there are a lot of people who think like me so, um, yeah, uh, fingers crossed that we can get back to a more sensible uh, state of affairs where uh, people on the left can fight against racism and uh, misogyny uh, and even <laughs> transphobia uh, in a way that uh, keeps sight of reason, um, accepts uh, alternative well-meaning arguments reaches a balanced position on these extremely uh, difficult issues like uh, transgender questions uh, where good people are on both sides of the left-wing debate. Uh, but this um, vigilantism uh, that uh, some woke activists are engaging in is just completely intolerable and intolerant and against all the principles that 
uh, at least the mainstream left has fought against. Clive, there are people who will agree with you. There are people who will disagree with you. There are people who will think about the things you say. But the one thing, I mean, there is more than one thing, but one thing I really admire about you is you are a man of your convictions and a man who has the courage of his convictions. So I'm not surprised at all to see Clive Hamilton wade into yet another extremely difficult um, environment where many fear to tread. So always appreciate your, your voice and your thoughts and very grateful for the conversation you've given me today. Thanks, Jonathan. Been a pleasure. That's all, folks. If you enjoyed the, this episode or the show in general, uh, please subscribe. Uh, consider giving a five-star rating on Apple and or Spotify, and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.